You're listening to the Golden West Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I explore the best in food and wine on the West Coast, including California, Oregon, and Washington. We're about to go on a journey, exploring the people and stories behind the vineyards, farms, and kitchens. So grab a drink, fire up your grill, pull up a seat to the table, and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Today's show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they're known for single-origin coffees, and they're committed to long-term, sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I always start my day off with a cup or two. I make it by hand with a pour-over, but it doesn't matter how you make yours. You can use a pour-over, maybe use a Chemex, maybe you just use a basic Mr. Coffee machine. It doesn't matter, but what does matter is the beans. You don't want those burnt, over-roasted corporate coffee beans that you find in the grocery store, and I don't even bother with that store brand stuff. So here's what you do. I'm going to make it really easy for you. Just go to covacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A, coffee.com, and use our promo code, GOLDENWEST. You'll get $5 off your first purchase. Do it now while you're thinking about it, and your coffee will show up at your doorstep as soon as you know it. Today on the show, we have Caitlin Lomo. Caitlin is the winemaker and owner of Resolution Wines. Her personal label started in 2018, featuring Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon. She joined the wine industry in 2016 after working a harvest just for fun while applying for medical school. She has since been working for the Tench family in Oakville under Russell Bevan's winemaking experience. The first vintage of her label, Resolution Wines, will be released in August 2020. Enjoy my conversation with Caitlin. Caitlin, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Ryan. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, it's great having you here. So I think the first thing to do before we get into what you're doing now as far as winemaking and your own personal label, let's talk about life before wine and kind of what led you on this path. Yeah, of course, Um, because wine wine making was not my original plan. So um, sure, I, I grew up in the Central Valley in California in a town called Visalia. It's close to Fresno. And I grew up imagining that I would become a doctor. It was my plan since I was very small. It was my favorite Halloween costume. And I loved watching movies with doctors in them and imagining helping people. And so I, um, I went to UC Davis to study pre-med. And I did it. I graduated and I sent in my applications to medical school. But I was super burnt out. And... So for the year that the applications were processing, I decided that I would do some fun things. (laughs) And I did some internships and I traveled and I did some things that were just completely unrelated to medicine. And one of the things that I ended up doing was helping a family friend who had just started a barrel distribution and delivery business. Um, That was my first exposure to Napa really. The warehouse was down in South South Napa near the airport. So, and it was my first introduction into the wine industry was the barrels. So I was helping mostly with accounting and administrative work, but I was spending my free time, you know, wine tasting and enjoying the restaurants in Napa. And one of the things I really wanted to see in Napa was the winery where the parent trap was filmed. And so I called to see if I could have a tasting, but I was sad to learn that, of course, you can't see the house or the winery during a normal tasting experience. So right. I kind of gave it up. And yeah, of course, right? <laughs> um, they don't want a bunch of tourists coming to see their house. I don't blame them. But um, so I kind of let that go a bit. But then I noticed one day on the documents that we were, or documents at the, you know, my job, that we were receiving barrels for that winery. So I asked if I could help deliver the barrels just so I could, you know, see the outside of the winery, if nothing else. So I arrived right. there. <laughs> yeah, I arrived there and um, I was helping unload the barrels and I was talking to the assistant winemaker. I just about like, how did you get into winemaking? What a, you know, I had my, my heart and mind set on being a doctor and it was very serious and here I am with someone helping unload barrels and just wondering, like, how do you do a job like winemaking? How do you get there? I was so interested. 
So I um, asked him, how did you get into winemaking? And he said, you know, he had his own path and he had made some wine in his garage and it just piqued my interest. And so we were chatting for about five or 10 minutes and he finally said, you know, you seem pretty interested in winemaking. Have you ever considered working a harvest? And of course the answer was no, because I didn't really realize that people did that, I guess. (laughs) And um, he said, well, it's almost time for harvest and I have some friends that are looking for interns if you're interested. And, you know, similar, it was in my line of thinking with taking a year off for fun things. So, so I said, yes, I'll work a harvest. And um, then I ended up switching all my gears completely. And I ended up um, starting my career in the winemaking industry. That's a really interesting story. You mentioned the barrels and kind of working in that capacity in kind of South Napa there. Um you know, it's interesting because I've been to a couple of wineries and early on I didn't, I hardly knew much about winemaking or anything. And one of the first things I learned when visiting was just the smell and <laughs> the amazing smell of the barrel, yeah. but also just the different toast levels. Um, was yeah. that something that you learned about when you uh, were working at that job? Absolutely. I was introduced to the difference in a Burgundy and Bordeaux barrel. Um, Uh I learned about the different forests where the wood comes from. Um, Of course, most of the barrels we use in Napa are, well, I speak from my own experience, Um, but we use a lot of French oak barrels. And um, but there are multiple forests within France and um, each one has, you know, the barrel has its own terroir. The barrel comes from a different forest. It's uh, seasoned and aged and for different amounts of years and in different places and then built by different craftsmen and then toasted. Um, barrels are toasted, the insides of them to different degrees for different lengths of time. And each one of those confers its own properties to the wine, basically, as the wine is aging. Yeah, yeah I, I, I learned a lot about it. Yeah, I didn't even think about the different forests and drilling down to that level. I knew there were higher quality barrels than others when it comes to French oak. You know, like you mentioned, most people in Napa are using French oak and there's probably different levels of, you know, quality and and barrel type, as you mentioned. I know when you look at American oak, silver oak comes to mind. I think they use American oak. Um, They have their own cooperage, I believe. Okay, right. And there's others. And when you get into Cooperage, I know Arnott Roberts, which is kind of more, they make kind of more natural wines. They have the two guys that started that. They they do their own Cooperage and things like that. So yeah, that's a really interesting kind of path to dive down of, you could almost work in that, just in that line of work in in the wine industry, right? Like it's it's a big enough space, I guess. Yeah. And and people do. It's... um... I think that the barrels are very interesting. They add their own personality to the wines for sure. Yeah, and we're going to get into that with your wine. But first, let's talk a little bit about your first harvest, which was at Brasswood. Yeah. Um, I was actually just uh, visiting there, I don't know, a couple weeks ago, and I had Marcus on the program, which was really fun. Um, oh, cool. And, you know, the amazing, uh, you know, custom crush facility and also restaurant. But let's get into your experience and you know, your first harvest and what that looked like. Yeah. Um, so I, like you said, I took my first internship job at Brasswood. It was 2016 and Brasswood was in the middle of a transition to becoming a custom crush facility. So I worked with multiple different winemakers over the course of my harvest there, making completely different kinds of wine. Um, you know, uh, we were making natural wines for Randy Hester, and he believed in, you know, natural fermentations. And um, t- he was checking the wines himself every day and adding things the way he felt he should. And then we also worked for other winemakers who had more of a recipe. And then we worked for other winemakers who were making, you know, potentially 100 point wines or who had made 100 point wines. And experiencing the way they make their craft was also really interesting. The people are really what made that experience. Uh, But of course, the winemaking, I was just enamored. Um, So, you know, harvest was a lot of work, which wasn't unfamiliar to me. 
having uh, gone through the pre-med track. But I had specifically wanted to work in disaster relief as a physician. So I had worked in other countries and um, and on projects like that, long hours. And so I was I was ready for it, but it was so intense. It was my first experience and I just learned by just jumping in. So um, maybe I could talk a bit about what Harvest is like in case people are unfamiliar, because I think it's just a really unique experience that um, I don't think the average person realizes uh, exists in the wine industry. Um, so Yeah, yeah. let's get into that a little bit, because there's there's not many resources out there for someone who wants to do a first harvest. There's, there's an article from, I think it's Sonoma Magazine, um, that talks about kind of like the, the grunt work in the cellar, and they do this whole kind of article on a first harvest. And there's a couple of blogs. I know uh, Jim Duane from his podcast had a good podcast with a couple of guys talking about their experience. Yeah. which was good, but I've only found like three or four pieces of content. So this will be great for people who want to do or who are thinking about a harvest. So let's hear it. <laughs> yeah, it was something, I mean, I learned everything from experience. I had no idea what I was walking into, but I was just eyes wide open. Um, but for just the average consumer out there, um, harvest and the Northern hemisphere is usually between September and November, depending on your variety and what kind of wine you're making. And it's it's an intense period of time because everything is time sensitive. So you, if you're just working at the winery, you'll receive the grapes and you have to process them. The grapes usually come to you, well, if they're handpicked, they come to you in clusters. So you have to dump the fruit onto your sorting table. You'll sort out the bad clusters or leaves that you don't want will go through some sort of destemming equipment. And then they're sent to the tanks for fermentation. Um, so there are a lot of jobs involved with that, just helping process the fruit. It's a pretty labor intensive experience depending on the equipment. But for me, the real magic happens once the fruit's in the tank. So you, um, depending on your winemaking style, you will, um, begin the fermentation either by adding yeast or for waiting waiting for the natural yeast to take hold and then you've got to take care of it every day as it basically ferments um the yeast will eat the sugar and create the alcohol that's the simple version but every day you are involved with the tanks and um either pumping the juice over to kind of give the tank a mix or by punching the grape skins down and so um it's a very active process and um, making sure that the tanks stay mixed and you truly get to watch the, the grape juice turn into wine. And it happens pretty quickly depending on, um, you know, your winemaking protocol. But basically those two weeks where it's fermenting, perhaps, um, that's where the magic happens. And you get to watch the wine, most of the wine develop right there in front of your eyes. And um, that's what I spent a lot of my time doing. My first harvest was moving pumps and hoses and mixing tanks and building building up yeast. And um, and I just remember being enamored. So I had the scientific background from UC Davis, working mostly in medical labs. And I remember like thinking about the equations of fermentation and thinking about what's happening in the tank, and then realizing like. I can taste, I can taste what's in this giant test tube. And I just yeah. remember it was just such a cool experience for me. And, um, and did you, you may not have had any preconceived notions about the work, but as far as the punch downs and the pour overs, was it, was it difficult or kind of more difficult than you thought it was going to be? Or what was your experience doing that and kind of climbing up the ladder and being on top there and, and actually yeah. you know, getting down and dirty into that hard work. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, I remember thinking, why do people pay for boot camp at the gym? Like they could just come work harvest and get paid to work out all day. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because <laughs> it is a lot of work. Um, but, you know, with mental persistence, your body will adapt and you can do anything you need to. What was difficult what became the long hours. So we were working seven days a week 
and many 16, 17 hour days. And when you've worked six or seven of those, you start to think, can I do it? (laughs) Can I keep doing it? But, um, but also like everything's time sensitive. There's no time for a break. So you just, you know, you push through and you get to the other side and you've made some beautiful wines and you sit back with your team and, and you can enjoy them. And it's a really cool experience. Yeah, that's that's so great. You know, you talked about some of the variants and the differences between the different winemakers that you worked with. So obviously, Philippe Melka, you know, Russell yeah. Bevan, Angelina Mandavi. Yeah, Angelina. Um, you did. You did mention Randy Hester. I hadn't heard of him vaguely. I think I did. I just looked it up. I think it's called Lightning Wines. Yeah. Um, yeah. So kind of more on the natural wine side. So you really got, you know, a view of, of, of many different wine styles, not to mention working with a couple of the top winemakers or a few of the top winemakers in Napa. Did you realize yeah. at the time that you were in such company? <laughs> I, you know, I really didn't. I, I mean, I had heard of some names like Philippe Melka, like Russell Bevan, through barrels because I I had helped coordinate so many deliveries to Philippe Melka wineries, um, but I didn't. Mm, I yeah, but I didn't. Um, I don't think I could fully appreciate the company that I was in un, until it was retrospective. So now I realize, like, I really just landed in a in a in a jackpot, really, of winemakers in the Napa Valley. Yeah. And then, you know, you mentioned we talked about the pump overs and the, uh, sorry, the punch downs and the, uh, the pump overs, mm-hmm. you know, how about doing the dig, dig out of, of the tanks, um, and the, the topping and kind of that last piece there before elevage yeah. and elevage for people who don't know. Um, and you can correct me on this, but I believe that's, you know, once the wine gets into the barrels, uh, eventually. The aging process. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So we only got halfway through harvest with my previous description. So after the fermentation's done, you know, we'll drain the tanks and the remaining grape skins have to be dug out and put into a press. And so I did get to experience dig outs. It's, it's something that everybody seems to love to do in the winery. It's kind of rewarding because you're watching this, the final step of the wine being put into barrels and or draining the tank for wine to be put in barrels. But the dig outs is something that it, it makes a friendly competition. I think in the winery, everybody wants to be the fastest one to dig out and it's a lot of fun. It's very rewarding, but yeah, also once you, once you dig out the tank and you press the skins and get the last bit of wine out of them, um, then it's time to put the wine in barrels. Of course, all of this depends on how, how you want to make wine because there are a million ways to slice it. but. Mm-hmm. Traditionally, the way I've worked with wine, then you put it in barrels. And um, at that point, you basically, the, the aging process starts. Um, so the barrels naturally, or the wine inside the barrels naturally evaporates. And so regularly, you have to continue adding wine to the barrels to keep them topped up to prevent the, the airspace in there that create that will oxidize your wine. So topping is an integral part of the aging process yeah no you know and a lot of people don't think about you know we've talked on the show we had rebecca weinberg on the program from quintessa this morning not not quite released yet um, but we talked about there and a few other episodes about you know how winemaking is an art but there's also science involved and for me one of the things learning more about it i didn't realize how much chemistry was involved and how much you know, kind of science there actually, you do have to know like pH levels and you get into, you know, all these things and yeast and, you know, you have a little bit of background in biology. So talk a little bit about, you know, you working during the fermentation and, you know, kind of the scientific part of winemaking and and how you feel about that. And then also juxtaposed against winemaking being such an art form. Yeah, I think this is an incredible thing about wine is that it's it it can't be one or the other. It has to be both. I came from very much a scientific background and I 
I remember asking different winemakers questions about acid levels, the first harvest. And it's like, well, how much acid do you add to do this? And they were like, well, and there was never, there were never really answers. And I didn't understand that at first because I, I came from a scientific background where one plus one equals two. And in winemaking, that's not always the case. There are rules and then there are exceptions. And then there are things that we just don't know why they happen. (laughs) So Um, I think that the science is a great tool to have in your toolbox for keeping your wine safe, for understanding how the pH will affect your sulfur levels, for instance. And if you can keep your sulfur levels at a certain concentration, then you're protecting your wine from spoilage or from oxidation. And I think those are really useful tools. But then sometimes the science fails you (laughs) and sometimes it doesn't make sense. And then you have to just trust your intuition, you have to trust your palate, and you have to make decisions based on, you know, the way you would make an art artistic decision. And I think that that's a wonderful thing about it is it it requires your left and right side of your brain <laughs> to make yeah. a delicious wine. Yeah, yeah, that's the the beautiful and kind of amazing part about it. And the more people learn about winemaking. There, you can drill down to so many levels, like we talked about the barrels, and there, like there's just so much to learn, which which is why I think it enamors a lot of people. Do you remember being able to taste any of the fruit as it came in or anything like that? I just I just mentioned it because <laughs> yeah. Marcus <laughs> talked about that he just <laughs> can't sometimes can't stop uh, sampling the fruit because they bring in the the fruit in the in the big crates and put them like right right outside his office uh-huh. and so he'll just yeah. start you know popping <laughs> Albernay <laughs> berries or something um which I thought yeah. was really funny and I personally I've never tasted you know berries kind of off off the vine or in it from a crate like that um I'm looking yeah. forward to doing it but did do you have recall any experiences doing that oh absolutely it's totally relatable it's um I, it's actually something I've thought a lot more about since my first harvest, but I remember um, one of the winemakers brought me a cluster of grapes from his bin. It was actually Randy. He brought me grapes and he said, you have to try this. It was Morvedra. And he said, this is just going to be an awesome year. And I popped one in my mouth and I was like, okay, yeah, that's pretty good. But, but how do you know, Randy, how do you know it's going to be an awesome year? And he said, have you ever had a really, really good strawberry? He's like, you know, you've had strawberries and some of them are okay. And then you have like one picked off the vine and it's just like the perfect strawberry. He said, that's what these grapes are. (laughs) So they just, they're so full of flavor and they're just to perfection. And I can't, describe it other than I know this because I've tasted a lot of other grapes and I've tasted this vineyard for vintages now. And so, you know, the same way you develop your palate for wine, I think you also develop your palate for grapes, except that you only get a very small window of the year to, to develop your palate for the grapes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. We had, I'm trying to think of just a couple quick examples. Diana Snowden came on and she talked mm-hmm. about you know, going in and sampling every day during that picking period and kind of going by her taste and kind of going by mouthfeel. Rebecca Weinberg talked about, you know, even right now going into the vineyard and kind of peeling and opening the grapes. And she had mentioned if the Cabernet right now, I believe she said has three seeds in the grape, whereas in tough years, it might only have like one or two seeds. And that has to do with tannins. And, you know, she said, well, based on that, this could become a really good year. And then also when you look at being an Indian summer, the hotter season here, and there, there's so many things you can look at, right? That, that's why it's in a lot of it oh, yeah. with experience and tasting Absolutely. and just being in the vineyard and touching the, the vines and the fruit and things like that. So um, yeah, that, that's a really relatable experience, I think, for someone. It's, everyone's tasted a strawberry. Everyone's tasted fruit and things like that. So, yeah. you know, you, you kind of know the difference when you have that magical <laughs> strawberry or whatever it is. You know, yeah. that's kind of an interesting point, too, that I've talked about with a few people as far as just expanding your palate for tasting is, mm-hmm. is sampling a lot of different fruits and sampling a lot of different vegetables to kind of 
um, exactly. you know, ex- expand your diet and then you'll be able to, you know, expand your palate to be able to pick up different notes and wine. Exactly. You can't experience the taste of something that you can't name or yeah. that you haven't <laughs> experienced before. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's, that's one thing I, I've been thinking a lot about actually. So I've been trying to try different fruits that I haven't had in a long time or um, vegetables or whatever the case is, or even herbs and spices. So I, I do or even find candy. that I can. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes we'll be tasting and somebody will be like, oh, it reminds me of this thing I had when I was a kid. Like, have you ever had that strawberry Twizzler or whatever? And then yeah. everyone's <laughs> like, oh, yeah, strawberry Twizzlers. And like, but who would have think to expect that in a wine? <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> so the, I think the more <laughs> the more you can expand your diet, you know, like you said, whether it's even candy or things like chocolate or caramel or it could be anything yeah. vegetable because you know you can pick up green notes in a wine and i know there's Absolutely. a lot of people who think wines are too green which yeah, i think yeah. that they actually have a point on some of them so you know that's yeah no that's a great um interesting point there let's kind of you know roll along here and pick up so you completed your first harvest and it sounds like it was a great experience overall but you know, after that point, were you quite convinced that you wanted to go into wine? Because as you talked about, you were kind of on the med school track and this was a, kind of a fun experience that you wanted to do. So what happened after that? Yeah. So one of the winemakers we were making wine for at Brasswood was named Russell Bevan. And he approached me one day near the end of harvest and said, you know, like, what are you going to do after harvest? And so I explained, I was like, you know, Russell, I'm applying to medical school. I, you know, I'm moving forward in the process. And he's like, medical school, (laughs) who would want to be a doctor when you could make wine? And that was really laughable to me because I was like, uh, I just spent a whole lot of money on an education and a lot of my time and probably arguably my sanity. So I think that maybe I would want to be a doctor. But of course, I didn't say that. I was just kind of like, okay, Russell. (laughs) And he explained that, um, you know, he was um, part of a project building a new winery in Oakville and that the winery was still under construction, but it would be open the following summer. And he point blank offered me a job. He like gave me, he's like, I'm happy to have you on the team there. If you want to come, here's your salary, your offer let me know. And it was very much open-ended. And, you know, I thought about it, thought about it. And then I decided to do it. (laughs) And um, it was a really big step, but I I took it and I never looked back. And that winery is called Tinch Winery in Oakville. And I have been there ever since. Yeah, what a huge decision and kind of a milestone. But I bet that it wasn't easy to make that decision and to you know, move forward there. With, with as much fun that you did have during harvest, I know it was only probably a few months, right? So that, that definitely was a was probably a big yeah. decision to make that leap. Yeah, it, it was. And, um, you know, I think my family arguably thought I was a little crazy. Um, but in the end, it's been the best decision I could have made for myself. Yeah. And let's talk about some of your other experiences here. So New Zealand is one, and this comes up a lot when I see people or talk to people or kind of read about their history is oftentimes going overseas and getting some experience and then coming back. So talk a little about that and why that was so valuable. Yeah. um, Well, New Zealand I, I was, well, I've always been really interested in traveling and I have taken as many opportunities as have been presented to me to travel. And what I loved about the wine industry was that, or one of the things I guess I love about the wine industry is that travel is built in and it's a very international community. Yeah. Um, on a more practical level, I also had committed to a job for you know, eight months later, and I wanted to do something in the meantime. And so I decided to get some more experience. And I originally wanted to go to South Africa. I still would love to go to South Africa, but I ended up in New Zealand and had an amazing experience. Um, I worked at a winery called Wipera Hills. It's on the South Island, about an hour north of Christchurch. 
Um, and we were making aromatic whites for the most part, you know, a lot of Riesling, a lot of Sauvignon Blanc, Pinot Gris. Um, we made some Gouverte Germiner. We also made some Pinot Noir, but mostly it was um, whites. And it was an awful vintage, but I learned so much while I was there. I was able to work in the lab. I was able to work the crush line and I was able to work in the cellar, um, you know, racking tanks, transferring wine, doing punch downs. Um, I just, I really got a, a full, you know, a full experience. And I also met my husband who, well, who's now my husband, but we were working harvest together in the cellar. So um, New Zealand, it did change my life. And it, I think that it uh, gave me a breadth of experience to take back to Napa and see something completely different. And I tasted a lot of wines there and learned a lot about making wines there. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade that experience for anything. I'm really glad it worked out. That's amazing. And and you I think you taught me just now how to pronounce Gewurztraminer, <laughs> if I'm getting that right. But you mentioned uh Pinot Gris, Riesling, you know, some of those whites that people know and love. Um, you mentioned kind of the tough vintage, and I think that's an interesting point too, because yeah, I'm not familiar with some of the tough vintages around the world, but I know Napa 1998 was tough, 2011. And then, you know, those are the two real tough ones. I know there may have been a few others. Those are the ones I always remember. But that must have been kind of a a learning experience, too, of going through kind of a tough one. Yeah. What happens when it all goes wrong? (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's easier when everything goes right. But, yeah, we, we had some tropical storms come through or the back end of tropical storms and just tons of rain and not a lot of sun. They had trouble getting the fruit ripe and... Um, yeah, it was interesting to see how they dealt with that too. It was, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So let's kind of go back to where we were just a minute ago. So you said you picked up, you you accepted the job at Tent. She obviously took the detour there during those eight months, which not only amazing experience and the work experience, but meeting your husband. Wow. And then <laughs> yeah. your future husband and then now coming back to Tent. So what was that like? And, you know, the current role where you are now, let's get into that, to that a little bit. And the history there is so interesting. You're such a great piece of land that I'll let you talk about. It is. Um, well, Tench just, it, it just, it feels like home. <laughs> it's, um, so for those that don't know, Tench is a vineyard in Oakville off of the Silverado Trail and the Oakville Crossroad. And, um, it, the land was purchased by the Tench family in the 60s, and originally the family grazed cattle on it, And but they decided that they should develop a vineyard. So they did. They developed the vineyard, and for decades, they sold the grapes to um, wineries around the Napa Valley. Um, and then when the newest generation of the Tench family took over the vineyard operations, they decided that they wanted to have their own wine and have their own winery. So they built the estate winery on the vineyard in Oakville. And that's when I met them was right before the winery was almost, you know, it was in the final stages of construction. So I arrived summer of 2017 and we didn't even have a road built yet. (laughs) It was a, the tanks had just been installed, but they hadn't, they didn't have any plumbing or glycol. The electricity wasn't done. So I saw the skeleton of the winery. And I also saw that we were having heat spikes the end of <laughs> summer of 2017. So we were right under the wire for finishing the winery as the fruit was ready to come in. And so that's what happened. We we basically, as soon as we got our permits, we hit the ground running and we were receiving grapes to be crushing the 27 vintage 2017 vintage and we were also receiving empty barrels and we were receiving full over vintage barrels for our winemaker Russell Bevan for his personal brands from other wineries and it was it was a uh, <laughs> it was kind of chaos but it was so exciting to be you know ground zero of this exciting new project for the family and for the property. 
So let's get into kind of your day to day and what that looks like at the winery. I know with winemaking, every day can be different and depending on the season. So that can be part of the fun or maybe part of the stress too. (laughs) I don't think that I could have ever taken a job where I had to do the same thing every day. I I love the variety. I love that it's seasonal. Um, And, and it does, it changes every day. Um, So on a day-to-day basis, I, um, I'm basically managing the winemaking on the ground. So I'm tracking the progress of the wines, but I am using the protocol that Russell provides to me. Russell being the head winemaker, he makes the call about everything really about from the, the, the pick date, the press date, everything we do to the wine in between. And then, you know, of course the barrels you choose and You know, Russell makes those decisions, but it's my job to make sure that those things happen on the floor. So I I manage the progress of the wine. I also jump in and do cellar work as needed. So especially during harvest um, or during bottling, you know, during harvest, I am, I'm out. Sometimes I'm doing pump overs. Sometimes I'm building up yeast, doing inoculations. Sometimes I'm on the forklift. Sometimes I'm cleaning drains. I kind of jump in and do that. and fill in the gaps when we're really busy or also during bottling, I'll help rack, I'll help blend the wines and clean the barrels. And, um, I still get to, I get the best of both worlds. I get to, um, manage things and I get the the bird's eye view of the wine, but I'm also on the floor making sure that some of these things happen when, when we need the help. And then, yeah. um, honestly, also a lot of forklifting. Um, a lot of people say that, 90% of winemaking is cleaning. And sometimes I think that 90% of winemaking is barrel management and organization. So I think between cellar work, uh, managing wine and moving barrels, that probably accurately encompasses what I do on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, that's that's a great overview. A couple of places I've been to have echoed that where it's you know management of the barrels and organization to just save a lot of time, you know, later on if you kind of organize things up front. So that makes sense. Exactly. We're in the middle, yeah, we're in the middle of July. So what is your day-to-day look like right now and kind of leading up into the harvest season? Yeah. Um, well, tomorrow we're doing a small, large format bottling. So, you know, we bottle the 750s in bulk and then we have some special three liters, six liters, nine liters, occasionally an 18 liter, but we bottle them on a different truck at a much slower pace. So we kind of do odds and ends projects like that in the summer. You know, also right now we're heavily focusing on preparing for harvest. So we've been having meetings about things like planning with COVID. <laughs> um, we are making training plans for our new interns. Uh, we're ordering fermentation supplies. Uh, yeah, I think that's basically what I've been doing lately. Yeah, planning. I'm- yeah, I, th- I know there's there's going to be a lot of planning for the upcoming harvest season with COVID-19 and, you know, distancing, but it's been said many by many people before already. It's kind of like the grapes are coming in no matter what. So everyone has (laughs) to, uh, you know, make the the preparations and, and, you know, hope everyone stays safe and see how this plays out. Let's get into your wine, which is really exciting. And um, I haven't gotten the chance to try it yet, but I know it's going to be released soon. So let's hear all about it. Yeah. So, um, in 2018, I had the opportunity to buy some of my own grapes and process them at the winery. I was really nervous to make this decision, but I, I did, I took the leap. I said, I can do it. I bought one ton of Cabernet Sauvignon, which is like two picking bins. And, um, and I made my own wine for the first time. I've, and I've done basically everything that I could myself. So I, I foot stomped the grapes when they came in. I did all the punch downs. I added my own yeast. I pressed the wine. I filled the barrels and I topped the barrels while it's been aging. And um, 
I bottled that first vintage, the 2018 vintage, on April 1st. So it's starting to come to fruition. So, yeah, I mean, you were involved in in everything with this wine, as you mentioned, from the foot stomping, doing the punch downs. You know, you were the winemaker and you were kind of responsible for everything. Let's talk a little about how that looked as far as some of the policies and procedures that you put into place um, and and kind of how that looked through the winemaking process itself. Okay, so it was my first vintage of making my own wine and calling my own shots. And I had, I, I didn't feel like I was fully equipped to really be the winemaker. I felt like I didn't have enough experience. And, um, you know, Russell told me, he's like, how are you going to get experience if you don't just jump in and, and do it? So that's what I did. Um, within reason, I had been making wine for him long enough to know how to get the wine or how to get the grapes through fermentation. So I did some things that were safe. And in terms of, you know, I added my own yeast, I added my own nutrients. I made sure to keep the yeast happy um, so that I wouldn't have issues down the line. Um, but I also didn't want to make um, a Russell wine. Um, I love Russell's wines, and I, but I think that they're his wines. They're his personality. I wanted to make a Caitlin wine. So I, um, one of the things that I did was I sang to it every day. And oh. I don't know if that's silly or not, but um, I, I, I kind of took care of it like it was my pet and I, I babied it through its fermentation process. And I think that the wine, it came alive in a way because of that, because it was because of the level that it was cared for. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you're not going to get that with every wine out there and having that your own personal touch and your own personal kind of policies and procedures, I'll call it. And, you know, that really adds a uniqueness to the wine um, that's, you know, and that's what's so great about wine, as we talked about before, is being a science, but also an art form. Yeah. So it's you're, you're kind of adding your own personal touch. And, you know, that kind of opens up a conversation, which we don't have to go too deep down. <laughs> but mm -hmm. when you look at just the calendar, um, the, the biodynamic calendar, and there's people who follow that and, uh, you know, I guess the broader point there is just connecting with nature and connecting with, you know, the vines. How do you kind of look at that if you have any opinion there? Yeah, I think that the biodynamic calendar is really interesting. I think that the biodynamic calendar is founded on this idea. I mean, of course, the, the moon cycle. But I think that the idea of the biodynamic calendar in practice, at least amongst my peers, is that the wine is different every day. And there are some days when it tastes better than others and some days when it tastes worse than others. And I'm, I'm not sure that the fruit days are always the best days and the root days are always the worst days. I think that the wine is alive and that um, every day you, you taste it, every time you taste it, it's going to be a little different because it's, it's on its own trajectory and part of its own life cycle. Yeah, that's a that's a good way to put it. The first time I ever found out that wine was even alive was kind of a funny concept to me. Um, yeah. it, it, when I was watching the movie Sideways, which we which mm -hmm. I had Rex Pickett on the show who wrote the book yeah. who became the movie. Um, you know, it was gosh, I forget the character's name now, but the you know, one of the lead characters gave that famous famous speech uh talking actually about Pinot Noir. Um, and kind of the thin skinned and she just gave this kind of like dramatic, amazing speech. And, and she mentioned in that speech about how the wine is alive and it's living and it's, it tastes different depending on the day that you open it. And that kind of got me thinking, I was like, wow, that's kind of interesting. <laughs> I had never yeah. heard that before. I watched that. It's, it's never the same twice almost. Yeah. So let's del delve into your wine a little bit deeper. So you mentioned you wanted to make it your wine. You wanted, you wanted to make it a Caitlin wine. You've been trained by Russell. You've been trained by, you know, different winemakers through your harvest experience and kind of winemaking career here. But let's talk about what the final blend here is and blending in general, because 
that's something that is a true art form and can really add a lot of nuance and depth to wine. Yeah. So I wanted the wine to be serious and worthy of being a Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon, but I also wanted it to be fun and drinkable and enjoyable. And, you know, if you wanted to think about it and think about the balance and the tannin structure, that that would be there for the taking. But I wanted it to also be approachable to people that just wanted to enjoy a nice glass of wine. And I wanted it to be vibrant and 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 bright, but I also wanted it to be, um, I guess, taken seriously. Uh, I had made two barrels worth of Cabernet Sauvignon, and I originally thought, "Hey, the blending's easy. I put this barrel with this barrel, and then that's my blend." But I had gone to one of the Sunday schools at Press. And for those of you that don't know, um, at least they used to, pre-COVID, Press, the restaurant in uh, St. Helena, would host Sunday schools. So once a month on Sunday afternoons, they would have a winemaker or, you know, a general manager or a vintner or somebody notable within the Napa Valley come speak. Um, in their wine cellar, they're in their wine cellar. It's beautiful. They've got a big table that can seat maybe 20 or 25 people. And so in the wine cellar on a Sunday afternoon, you'd be at the table with a winemaker and you'd hear about, you'd taste through some wines with them. You'd hear about their story. And I went to a Sunday school that featured Heidi Barrett and I was in there with her for two hours and of course 20 other people and tasted her wines and listened to her story. And after the, the event was over, I, you know, bashfully approached her and said, hi, Heidi, my name's Caitlin. I'm um, starting my own wine label. Do you have any advice to a brand new winemaker? And she said, Hmm, yeah, what kind of wine are you making? And I said, well, I have Cabernet Sauvignon. And she said, okay, my advice is to not make 100% Cabernet Sauvignon. To find a five gallons from somewhere, somewhere else, to buy it bulk if you have to, buy it from another winemaker, but but put put at least five gallons of something else in there so that it's a blend. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what advice I was expecting from her, but it wasn't that. <laughs> I was kind of like, oh, okay, I need to think about, um, you know, what what is my wine missing that could be enhanced by adding a small portion of something else? And after, you know, tasting, you know, I've tasted a, a lot of wines in our blending sessions for the wines that we make at Tench. I decided that my my wine could benefit from, you know, a bit of a, um, something more luscious to make it a bit softer and more fruity. And so I chose to blend a little bit of Merlot with my Cabernet Sauvignon. So the finest, the final blend is 95% Cabernet Sauvignon and 5% Merlot. Yeah. And that I'm sure gives it that kind of silky mouthfeel and that kind of more, gosh, I mean, maybe you can describe it, but just kind of that balanced, uh, you know, flavor. There's not too many winemakers who do the 100% cab. I know there are some. Um, I was recently over at Kathy Corson mm-hmm. at Corson Winery, and, you know, she's never done any bunding. She just kind of does the single varietal. You know, I was told that she kind of keeps believe it's Cab Franc just kind of at the ready just in case, but she hasn't used it yet. So, um, but when you look at, yeah, when you look at someone like Heidi Barrett, who is kind of probably one of the most masterful blenders, when you look at Screaming Eagle, Dalavali, you look at uh, Paradigm, you look at, I mean, you can go down the list and then her own label, La Serena. Um, and she mm-hmm. makes a wine called, I think it's Pirate, which is kind of her blend where, where she just throws a bunch of grapes in there, different varietals, which is a kind of a fun, interesting one too. But yeah, that, that's something she's really known for. So what an amazing yeah. story that you were able to kind of chat with her a little bit there before, you know, embarking on how you wanted to blend your wine. Yeah, Let's- it changed my trajectory. Yeah. And let's talk about, you know, kind of without me putting words into your mouth, 
just the winemaking philosophy there as far as, you know, science versus art and then kind of what you were trying to produce? I think that my winemaking experience has taught me that sometimes less science and more sorcery is the way to go. That's how we talk about it at the winery, because sometimes the science, like I mentioned earlier, it doesn't always perfectly add up. And also the wine is a living thing and it really reacts to how it's treated. This isn't something that I'm sure I believed before, before winemaking, but I've, I've heard this idea batted around a lot by other people in the industry that the wine takes on personalities and that the wine will taste better based on the energy in in the winery, perhaps. And I've met winemakers that will fire people or interns during harvest if their attitude's not good because they don't want it to affect their wines. Oh my gosh. And um, I'm not sure that's everyone, but that was something that had been told to me early on that that they had experienced that. And um, so that's part of why I sing to my wine every day um, during fermentation and um, it's led me to lean on my intuition for um, like making my blending decisions. I, I had no science, scientific base for adding Merlot. I wasn't trying to adjust anything by adding Merlot other than quite literally just the flavor, <laughs> just the experience of the wine. And so I think that actually something that I learned about before winemaking was studies by Dr. Emoto in Japan and he studied water crystals. And he basically scientifically proved that thought or intention can impact the molecular structure of water. So what he would do is he would take two identical glasses of water, perhaps, and he would treat them differently. He would He's done hundreds of experiences. But just for an example, he might write the word love on one glass and write the word hate on another glass. He would then freeze the water and he would analyze the, the, the ice, the crystal structures of the ice after it had been frozen. And he started to document the differences in, um, in the ice structures. And he, was, he started to um, group them based on you know, positively treating something or negatively treating something. And he proved that good intentions or nice words can actually change the structure of water. So that kind of is the bridge for me. You know, the science proves that the way that you treat um, something water-based will uh, impact, will impact its future. And that's kind of the sorcery for me. <laughs> Less science, more sorcery. The sorcery is that the way you treat the wine, um, it does impact it. Yeah. And the way you're describing the wine here, um, I know people are going to want to taste this wine. So um, you know, this wine is a Napa Valley Cabernet, as you mentioned, that has a little bit of uh, Merlot in it. Um, and you talked about kind of all of the, you know, the policies and procedures and the winemaking philosophy. Um, yeah, I was watching, it was the YouTube series with Karen McNeil. I believe it was Oakville Grower series. I can't remember mm-hmm. the name, exact name she called it, but she had mentioned that I believe if I'm getting this right, like 1% of wine in the world, it comes from Napa Valley. And then like a percentage of that comes from Oakville. <laughs> and so, and <laughs> yeah. then when you look at Tokalon or you look at even Tench or, or the property kind of around there where Rudd is and Dalavali and, uh, you know, you can look at these different properties. Um, and, and I just, I was trying to do some quick back of the envelope math, but it's, it has to be in the finance world, we call it basis points. So it's like maybe <laughs> a few basis points, which is like a fraction, you know, I don't know what the exact numbers are, but True. Yeah, we're talking about some really amazing fruit and that's just in Napa Valley alone. And you can drill down to, to different AVAs, which have, of course, you know, different pros and cons. Let's lastly just talk about the label here because there's kind of no words to describe it. It's it's really beautiful. People just have to see it to kind of experience it. Um, But talk a little about how that came about and what you were going for. 
Yeah, I'm not sure if I've mentioned the name of my label. I'm calling it Resolution Wines. And the reason that I chose the word resolution is that I wanted the wine to embody kind of my idea of the wine itself. And for me, the wine, it's really interesting how it can bring very different things together. So we've talked a lot today about science and art, and certainly science and art come together in wine, but it's also about, you know, reason and intuition. It's logical, it's sensory, it's nature, you know, what you get for the vintage, and it's also nurture, like what you do to take care of the wine. It's also planned, it's also improvised. It's just, it brings all these very different dichotomies together. And I love that the word resolution kind of means to resolve, to, you know, to kind of put these things together in a harmonious way. And so that is also what I was going for on my label. Um, I was, I had this vision that I wanted to watercolor, have, have like a watercolor as the medium for my label. And I tried to make something on my own, but it just kept falling flat. And I was getting kind of down to the deadline of when I needed to order labels for my bottling. And I ended up finding a graphic designer who was also a watercolor artist. And she designed the label for me. Her name is Grace. And she made this watercolor splash of different shades of red. And she and I talked a lot about bringing things that were very different together. And the the way that the reds come together on the label, it shows that things can be very different, but still meld together and, and in the end make something harmonious. And yeah. so, yeah. Yeah, it's it's such a beautiful label. So people can go to the website resolutionwines.com, uh, you know, pick up a bottle or two or or a case hopefully if you're uh and then, you know, maybe even come back and revisit the podcast while you're sipping on some wine. Yeah, that'd be great. So I think lastly, usually what I have with guests is have a little bit of fun and what have you been drinking lately? Any food and wine pairings? The weather's been so hot lately. Uh, typically, rosé, you know, summer whites. It's funny, though, because there is at least one or two people who they're like, it's 90 degrees, but I'm drinking Cabernet Sauvignon. I don't care. They're like, it's delicious anytime. So, it's so what, have you, what have you been drinking? I, I can't knock Cabernet Sauvignon year-round because certainly it's a staple in our house. But... Yeah, like you said, it's been warm and we've been drinking some lighter wines as well. You know, during quarantine, my husband Quentin and I bought some French whites. We found a, you know, a deal through an importer and we've been making our way through those. Um, We last opened a Petit Chablis that was pretty good. But also Quentin, he works for Julien Fayard and Julien just released a new rosé label called Just Pink. And that's probably been our our summer jam. We've we've drank through quite a bit of just pink. <laughs> nice. That sounds good. What, do you know what uh, or how it was made? Which style um, or like what grapes went into that wine? Don't quote me. Not a hundred percent. But Julian grew up um, in the south of France, so it's it's definitely a south of France style of rosé, and I'm pretty sure it's from um it's from a lot of different varieties but i think it focuses on grenache more veteran syrah but again yeah. oh god don't quote me on that yeah that sounds like a really good one there's different ways i know to make so, uh, rosé whether you're kind of doing a bleed out or there's different ways that you can do it but uh, yeah i think right now as the weather is staying hot that particular rosé actually sounds really good so people who haven't heard of it or are kind of curious to find something new i think you just gave them a good idea it's perfect for summer yeah great well caitlin i really appreciate having you and thanks so much yeah thank you ryan Thanks for joining us today. If 
you like the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can support the show by subscribing to our email newsletter for just five bucks a month. Find it on our website at goldenwestpodcast.com. In it, you'll find unique bottles from both popular and undiscovered winemaking talent, among other things. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter at goldenwestpod, or you can email us at goldenwestpodcast at gmail.com. As a reminder, all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and may or may not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or any other advice. Please eat and drink responsibly and thanks for listening.